I'd like to begin with a, a quote from the great naturalist John Muir, who, if any of you have been, uh, probably many of you have, up to Marin County in Northern California, was there a couple months ago in the Muir Woods. He's just amazing, amazing 800, 900 year old redwoods, a testament to the amazing capacity for life to express itself in incredibly, incredibly grand form. And uh, he said, there is not a fragment in all of nature. For every relative fragment of one thing is a full harmonious unit in itself. There is not a fragment in all nature. For every relative fragment of one thing is a full harmonious unit in itself. Well, we're continuing our journey this evening of the five, the five inner strengths, powers, kind of inner quality of non-egoistic dignity. So what does this have to do with that? What I hope to do this evening is to continue systematically to work through these uh, different qualities that are very relevant in our practice as we continue on the journey of Anapanasati, full awareness with breathing, here on this retreat. And I hope to weave in a number of elements from that. So some of that will be repetitive, but uh, in practice, often repetition is, is quite important. You see things differently when we hear them in different, from different states of mind. And also uh, just relevant to qualities of awakening regardless of how we're working, what objects we're working with. So there's a movement in practice where as our practice unfolds, and today the instructions were expanded so that we weren't just working with one object of meditation potentially, but opening up to a wider field. And often when we do that, then the elements of our life, particularly our inner life, that are difficult, that are painful, that feel like fragments, that are fragments in a way, that we start to invite those in. And as our practice matures, there's the possibility, this is what we're testing, that even those fragments, those split off painful parts, as well as those joyful moments of experience, they all have integrity. And they can all be gateways into freedom. Or to affirm what Larry said, our, our peace is found right in the place of our sorrow. So these five qualities are ways to touch that potentiality and to realize it in the immediacy of the present moment. So just a bit of review from last time. So we, uh, the five qualities are uh, faith, uh, conviction, uh, confidence, effort, perseverance. Third is mindfulness. The fourth is concentration, samadhi, and the fifth is wisdom. 
And so just to review a bit of the first two that we went through. So faith. Faith is the very fundamental sense that the movement from the known to the unknown. And so as we move through all this, hopefully we'll weave it into our practice here and make use of it. So as you listen as well, see if you can listen from the point of view, not so much from the head, but in terms of the quality of how we're learning to meet the moment in our lives here. So let it be a practice. Because really on a, on a retreat, even though the, the Dharma talk at night may seem potentially along with the food, it's the only sort of uh, entertainments that we might have during the day, it actually has a very important function, which is to, to move the retreat along, as do the groups, as do the individual interviews as does all the aspects here, but really to move and keep us steady in the quality of what we came here to do. So I hope that this uh, sharing, it supports that, that movement. So faith or sada, um, moving from the known to the unknown. Um, it was a faith, it's commonly represented in this tradition, a faith in letting go. But then of course, how do we do that? It's a faith, it's, a, it's the possibility. And it's that faith of opening our energy. If we can move from faith to, uh, it's a heart energy, of, to devotion, to actually a way of offering, of just opening up our attention into the moment. And it's a, it can be a moment-by-moment practice, in a way. That, that's, that's the movement of, of faith. Now, there's a lot of danger in faith, of course because when it attaches to objects and it doesn't move with wisdom. And we'll also explore more how these different factors work together uh, tonight. Then it can be quite dangerous. So in this tradition, faith is, is not blind. The emphasis is on bright faith. So it, it marshals energy. Okay? And then it becomes verified. And maybe you've already had, and it's come up in the groups even today, little moments when our practice kicks in and there are moments of really touching deeply in the moment. And some things that we are gripping on, holding on to, just release. They unwind. They let go. And there's little bits of freedom, little bits of clear, intimate connectedness without all these layers of fragmentation and splitting off. And so when we have those, that's a verification. Okay? That's what this means. That's what verified faith is. And it moves to confidence because then it's our own experience. It's not... But it still, it strengthens it because it moves back. It gives us more confidence to move fully into the unknown without needing it to be a certain way or not be a certain way. So effort was the second, and that was both an orientation, an alignment in a way of, of respecting the principles, which I talked of the first night quite elaborately, that the principles of practice where we create a sense of, of harmony in terms of action so that there's a real sense of safety and community so we can drop in to the present moment in a more sustained and potentially fruitful way. And as I mentioned, the, the, the path, it said, the Buddha Dharma has, it's like a bird with two wings, compassion, which is a, the, the commitment in a way to not abandon, to not abandon our lives, the moment, others, uh, even a relationship with our emotions, etc. 
That doesn't mean circumstances don't change, of course. And if we need to make skillful change in our lives, in the way we practice, etc., uh, then we do. But it's a non—it's a commitment to non-abandoning, and there's a there's a, a responsiveness to how we meet life from that. And the other is an abandoning of of that which gets in the way of clear seeing and movement, often having to do with some inner grasping, some center to our experience that just won't let go, won't hold on. So there's a commitment and effort to to abandon certain things, to strengthen others, so that the the Dharma can flower in our own experience, compassion and wisdom. And then the second meaning of of effort, the more primary one in terms of our moment-by-moment experience here, because of course we're not trying to create compassion. We're not making it an ideal and trying to reach for it. So we're not trying to make good and bad, right and wrong. What we're doing is we're opening so fully into the moment that when we see fully in the moment, the energies that naturally arise are clear and responsive, which is the essence of wisdom and compassion. So qualities of effort, we can have strong effort, right? which can be helpful in, in often in small doses. Uh, we can have very uh, relaxed effort, which is often an antidote for the striving, the very condition to strive. So it, it helps to emphasize that to really balance, and that's where we want to find, like the lute player I mentioned, when the, tight, when the strings were too tight, didn't make beautiful music, and when the strings are too loose, you don't make beautiful music. And so the music we're making is actually the relationship that we have to the moment. And so the third uh, of the qualities, the inner powers or strengths to explore, is mindfulness. And in a way, it's where we apply. It's where, it's, it's where we ground these energies. So mindfulness, on, and it has two basic qualities. One, and we, we think of it often, and it's, take, it's gotten a lot of, has uh, a very common meeting in, in the culture. And it has widespread mindfulness-based stress reduction, mindfulness this, mindfulness that. It's everywhere, right? It's as wide as, uh, I don't know, Whole Foods or it's like there's a mindful, something mindfulness like there's a yoga place on every corner. Uh, so in one sense, there's something very beautiful about that because it captures uh, a lot of the wonderful qualities, a lot of the most pertinent qualities of practice. And it's said, actually, that of all these qualities, you can't have too much mindfulness. So there's, but if we look at it more closely, there are two actual functions of mindfulness. Uh, and they have specific meanings on this path of awakening. So the first is from the term, uh, sati is the term, and it's related to the, uh, a root word in Sanskrit called smriti, which is memory. Okay. So on one level, memory is very akin to the first quality of effort that, that we had, which is aligning ourselves with the direction of, of our practice. And it actually means that we have, a, we have a respect. So memory has to do with thought and mind. We have a respect for cause and effect in our lives. So we work, we actually work to 
make a commitment and be mindful of learning from our experience. So that, and often when we come up on when, in retreat, what comes up in our minds and hearts is ways that we were not treated well, and we see the consequences of that in terms of, of, of an inner quality of, of a whole, a weakness, a painful. And if we're self-honest, which is a key throughout this, we also know that you know, we haven't always been skillful. All relationships are interdependent. And so on retreat, both the pain of being injured and also sometimes the remorse of not being skillful can come up. And on one level, it's very important overall in our practice. So this is not just particular for retreat. And actually, we play this down on retreat. To learn to work with those energies skillfully. So there are qualities in practice uh, where if we do something unskillful, okay, for ourselves or others, whatever, and it comes up, we actually learn from it. We make a commitment to learn from it. So the Buddha had an exchange with his son where he... Uh, he basically told his son, when you act, kind of think how, if you think it'll be skillful. And then if you, while you're doing it, reflect and see how it's going. And afterwards, see how it went. And then if you find out that it wasn't skillful, and usually the, the reference is for self or others, and Larry may talk more about this, um, that you actually learn from that. So we don't get caught in guilt. We, it's, it's a very different energy than guilt, and the mind shrinks around it. But it's actually, oh, let me learn from this. Let me use my thinking ability, memory. Let me think it, let me think it through. What were the circumstances, et cetera? And then we create the intention to, to work in a different way. In a certain way, that's probably why a lot of us are here. Certain things haven't worked in terms of inner peace. So uh, we see that, and then we try something else. So it's in that, it's in that spirit. But it's, a not, it's not a denial of thought whatsoever. And it's, it's, in a way, it's a cultivation over time of that which is skillful and then a working through and a reduction of that uh, which is harmful. So there's a, a teaching tradition in, in Tibet. They're called Kadampa masters. And uh, it said I get, they're monks. I don't know. I've never, I don't know who they are, but I like the stories. Uh, and it said that they, one practice they do so very simple is that they have, uh, they have uh, black, uh, little, little, little black stones and white stones. And then at the end of the day, they try to remember how many black stones, how many negative thoughts and actions they did, which caused harm for themselves or others, and how many white ones. And their work is to try to change the balance in a certain direction. <laughs> so I like, it's very simplistic. But in a certain way, one orientation of mindfulness is that we, we have that level of sincerity where we, we really work with the, creating the conditions in our lives and the situations we find ourselves in where there can be more happiness in our actions, in, in the world we live in, et cetera. And when we, when we find that we're doing things that are counter to this, that we learn from it and we actually have fun with it. Okay, maybe it's not always fun. <laughs> uh, but... It's a commitment to learning, and it's not a tight commitment. It's, it's a lifelong commitment in a way, fundamental to our Dharma practice. So that's something, and it, so it actually uses thought. So sometimes if, that, if stuff that's strong comes up on retreat, it's not our primary focus, but sometimes it's fine to actually like, reflect a little bit if it's really 
consistent and it's coming up and it's taking us out of the moment again and again. Uh, and if there's something that we need to do, you can pull aside in a way and uh, make an intention to deal with that when you're done. Now, mostly when I've done things like that, they turned out, when I've looked at my afterwards what I wrote down, because I've done it on long retreats sometimes, it's been gibberish because my state was so altered. <laughs> but it's a wise, it can be a wise use of time in, in little, little amounts. Okay? And it opens us into the fact that we can have a skillful relationship with thought and with memory and with intention, which is very vital in the path. The primary focus on retreat, and of course what strengthens that, is the capacity to actually be present. Right? And so sati, uh, the remembering to come back, the remembrance usually isn't this reflective remembrance, and this is our primary focus on retreat. It's the remembrance to come back to what we've said for ourselves in the present moment in a way that is non-judgmental, right here and non-judgmental. That's the primary, so that's the key. It's the remembrance to come back to what we've said for ourselves. And that applies when we do reflection too. <laughs> it definitely applies to, 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 to working with thoughts as well. Um, so what are we doing on retreat? We're applying this capacity to grounding it in the immediacy of our experiences, which is where our path unfolds, in the four foundations of mindfulness with breathing. So that's our fundamental commitment in terms of a practice. And what does it mean to have non-judgmental present moment awareness? And that's what's so uh, quintessential about this term. So one, you remember to come back. You're with the breath. You go off somewhere. If that's what your intention is to come back to, that's what you come back to. If we've opened the practice up and there's the intention to be with the breath, but also not to include whatever else is vivid, whatever else is arising and is predominant, then that's what we come back to. Okay? Or if we need to move back and forth, we're, we're fine-tuning our practice individually now. But what does non-judgmental mean? Judgment is the energy of the mind and the heart that has a relationship of pushing and pulling and then creating some, usually some identification around it, clinging to it. So if you remember from the, uh, the last talk I gave on the Buddha's enlightenment night, the image was that all these energies of wanting and fear and anger through the personification of Mara, came at him. And he did not move. He didn't deny them. He saw them. And that's the key of mindfulness. You're not blocking out what's there. What you're attending to, you're attending to. So he attended to them. But he was not shaken. So the mind stayed in the middle. And that became a core in terms of the quality of, of mind that we work with. The mind that can stay in the middle when experience comes at it. And what did he do to, uh, to affirm that? He touched the earth. And so in a very practical way, in our mindfulness practice, when we touch the moment without these qualities of wanting, not wanting, and we really touch the moment deeply, simply, then we are affirming 
that quality of steadiness here and now, non-judgmentalness here and now. And that's our practice. What's very simple about this is that functionally it's a pre-verbal moment that we often have or akin to a pre-verbal moment that we have often in perception. So if you're looking right now, and if most, some of your eyes are closed, that's good. <laughs> if they're open, that's fine as well. Whatever is meeting your senses in the immediacy of that moment of contact, there's the seeing. Then the conditioned responses come in. So mindfulness is akin to that primary moment when there's the object, there's the sense, seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching in the mind, and there's just the arising of consciousness, perception. Mindfulness is akin to that moment before everything else comes in, before the overlays come in. And it's, it can be a mirror-like quality, very simple, pristine in a way. And so what strengthens mindfulness? We've worked with effort, which is a balanced effort. Mindfulness itself is often strengthened by a simple quality of interest or curiosity. So if we're, if we're in nature and we're just curious, we just see, then we can tap that in a way. And it's natural. Curiosity is a natural function. Uh, when we, around the center, when we just, the moments when we find ourselves just simply engaged, and there's not, the mind's not doing anything with it. Those are moments of mindfulness. So our mindfulness practice is choosing. And then mindfulness practice is developed, as, as Larry was mentioning, and I'll reinforce, in, in four systematic ways. And there's a reason it's done this way. Because the whole arc, the whole slope of, of, these, of these qualities of mind is towards freedom. And it's often much more difficult, as you may find, I'm sure you have when we open the practice, to have that relationship with an old wound or a fantasy that's loaded positively or negatively than it is with a breath. So the first foundation of mindfulness is just, just using its body and its breath in the body. And so that's the, that's the beautiful sort of simple quality of the sutra that we're working with. But it doesn't end there. The second foundation, Larry spoke of it, but I want to read a little just to go back to the, uh, uh, the sutta from the actual, uh, and I'm, working, I'm going to work some from the sutta itself. So this is on the body. The meditator remains focused in the body in and of itself, ardent, alert, and mindful without greed and distress with reference to the world. So that's the first. Second, the meditator remains focused on feelings. So that's the, it's like a primal quality of, of, of emotions in the mind. It's the pleasure. It's like pleasure, pain, sort of neutral uh, principle. Remains focused on Feelings or sensations in and of themselves, ardent, alert, and mindful, putting aside greed and distress 
with reference to the world. So again, it's this quality. There's not greed or in distress is a negative energy. It's not pulling or pushing energy. And then the third, which uh, Larry spoke of as well, it works directly with the mind. And so it says here the meditator knows uh, as a sensually wanting mind to be sensually wanting, a mind without sensual want to be without sensual want. He knows a, he or she knows a mind that is uh, aversive or angry to be angry or aversive and one without those qualities to be without them. The same thing with a deluded, confused mind and without confusion. And it goes on, a mind that is contracted. You can feel when the mind is contracted, the heart. And the mind and the heart are, are one in the traditional way of seeing. So it's not just mental activity, it's mind and heart. Chitta is the, is the word. Uh, contracted mind, not contracted. Distracted mind, not distracted. The heart mind that is liberated and the heart mind that is unliberated. So this is showing us something quite, it seems very simple on the surface, but when we start to touch this quality, it's quite unique. Because those very things that we considered distractions, that had content, that we, that wanting mind, the not wanting mind, those become actual places that we can bring mindfulness. They become the actual stuff of our meditation in a way that is not a distraction to our meditation. And often we spend a lot of time working with the breath and the body to build a foundation where this opening becomes fruitful. And it's a natural opening. It's the same as we work with the fourth foundation, which includes um, classically all the senses. So we open to whatever's vivid. And so even a negative thought, what we call a negative thought is no longer a negative thought. It's the mind that has, and the heart that have, has certain qualities, is holding certain energies. And mindfulness is that capacity to be in a clear relationship with them. So we can start to, in moments, we can start to touch this realized, but we can start to touch the possibility of this. Then our practice takes on a whole different quality of possibility. Because then our life, in all of its expressions, becomes a place of wakefulness, a place where we can bring mindfulness. But it's built and it's worked on developmentally often, and we have to be skillful with that. Because often when there's a, a mind state that's difficult, we don't have, we don't have a, a mindful relationship with it, right? The, the classic term is called papancha. It means we spin out, <laughs> right? We have, a, we have a negative, we have a, we're, we're, it's too hot, isn't it? It's not too hot? It's too hot, right? Okay, it's not just hot, it's too hot. So the too hot is what, we're doing to the actual fact that it's hot and it's unpleasant. It's very hard for too hot to become hot. It's very easy for too hot to become way too hot. And why, and why don't they get air conditioning in here? I guess they're planning on it, but too bad. Come back next year, <laughs> et cetera. 
and the mind spins on itself, doesn't it? It goes in one direction and then it has a reaction to that. And then if it likes, and here's what happens, if it likes what it says, oh, it's too hot, they're to blame. Then what has it done right there? It gets a little pleasant feeling for a moment out of making someone else wrong. Sorry, I hope this, is this being recorded? IMS. Isn't IMS a wonderful place? It's okay. <laughs> Listen, we all ought to be really grateful because you want to be sitting out there with the bugs? It's hot in here, but it's a sheltered place. and They got new speakers. It's, you can hear. Can everybody hear? Good. Whew. <laughs> so the mind adds, and it does it through this very clear cycle of places where mindfulness could be present and stop the addition process. But usually we don't have that intention and we don't have that capacity. When we open the practice, mindfulness can touch anywhere in the process. So you can be halfway down, you can be already installing the AC yourself because you're great. You can be at that point and then you can realize you can wake up right there. And that's a moment of mindfulness. And that in any moment when that quality is there, we're strengthening the function of the mind and the heart which inclines. Remember I said last talk, there's an inclination of these, of these qualities towards freedom, towards the taste of freedom in the here and now. So any moment is a moment, and often mindfulness is like, it's like a, you have to, it feels like you have to fill up a whole bucket and it's drip by drip. And so that's why all these qualities start to work together. So mindfulness is strengthened by the willingness, the effort, and often the, the, a, a faith and often when practice is difficult, faith is just, we don't know why we're practicing. Something is, has anyone experienced that on this retreat? But something keeps us going. There's some energy. It doesn't have to be in our brains that keeps us going. And then in moments, we wake up. We have that clear mindfulness in the present moment. So effort helps us with that too. But what's sustaining of mindfulness is curiosity and interest. Very interesting. It's just what's, and when we open it up, it's just arising right now. And we're using the stability of breath. And the next feature, the next of these factors is concentration, which we'll talk about, which is very key to strengthening mindfulness. But mindfulness in itself, it has this function. And uh, in the world, it's, I kind of, I think of it as an anti-ADD when we bring these two elements together. Anyone suffer from ADD besides me? Not too many. Okay, good. All very focused people. Very good. <laughs> so it's the remembrance to come back, right? And it's to what we've set for ourselves. So mindfulness can actually, it's interesting, it has, we have to have, it's called right mindfulness. The inclination towards what is skillful, towards learning. That's why I mentioned the first part. You can be very mindful and have the intention towards harm, can't you? All right? You can be very, come back to what you set for yourself moment by moment, we do, if we have a bad intention in conversations, Larry talks about being the master of wrong speech. Well, it's actually an important place to work. <laughs> so if we, if we want to get somebody back, we're actually mindful, aren't we, of opportunities? Just waiting, very mindful. And then when it's there, up. And then what happens? Pleasant experience. <laughs> so we can use mindfulness for 
any purpose. But it becomes a factor of awakening when we use it towards clear seeing that inclines towards steadiness and inclines towards freedom. And so, um, and inclined towards seeing really the quality of experience. So that's what, the, that's, what's, that's what the essential thing is. When we drop into the moment, we learn to actually touch the qualities of experience exactly as they are. So the Bade Karata Sutta, one of my favorite uh, sort of pithy suttas. I'm not going to read the whole thing. And it brings us into our relationship with time, which is very, very essential in this practice. How do we work with time? It says, what is past is left behind. The future is as yet unreached. What do you think? Have we left behind where we came from? Are we reaching for the end of the retreat? Or at least till it gets cooler? Or until we have a more pleasant experience? So what is left, the past, what is past is left behind. Why? Because we're here. The future is yet unreached. Okay. Whatever quality is present, you clearly see right there. Right there. It's actually right here. Right here, isn't it? Whatever quality is present, not taken in, unshaken, that's how you develop the heart. Whatever quality is present, you clearly see right there, right there, not taken in, unshaken. That's how you develop the heart. So the qualities of, again, it's the same movement, the qualities of those things which could have been distractions, could have been anywhere on the cycle spinning out in anything, whether it's a beautiful cycle upwards or whether it's a sinkhole, which we often get stuck in, of emotions and thoughts and images all circling together. If we can see whatever quality is most predominant, just whatever's touching us, not taken in, and that's how mindfulness when it, becomes, when it becomes stabilized, when we build moments, when there are many drips of mindfulness again and again and again, then we start to touch that quality of the mind that is in the middle, the quality of the mind that is not taken in, that is not shaken. And it says that's how you develop the heart. That's how we start to reorient this inner sense, which I spoke of last, last talk of the the sense that our, our, our sense of, of worth so much is based on outside and it's based on our inner feeling relation to objects, accomplishments, other people. And the Buddha's teaching is so much oriented on our inner sense and it's, it's, it's like a, a non-egoistic uh, kind of self-worth in a way. <laughs> if that's a contradiction in terms, I know. But it's a... It's a it's that we actually start to relax into and place confidence in and take strength when these qualities are arising, when they start to flower in our experience. And so it's a quiet inner passion. It's a quiet inner devotion. And whatever quality it is, when we taste the fruits of it, we know. We know that we're here. We know that we're living in a way that 
in a way, fulfills the moment. We don't need to fulfill it. The quality of how we're meeting it is the quality of fulfillment right there. So there's no goal in that sense. We talk about goals. It's from getting here to here. And this is a process of really learning to value the, that doing that. And I like this teaching because it's a process. It's saying that it's like a skill that we learn and we learn to value along the way. So like if you, learn, if you learn to play tennis or something, you can want to be the best tennis player in the world. I don't know. Has anybody learned to, you know, some sport they become really good at or, or learning a musical instrument or whatever it might be? And there's so much goal orientation. You might get to that. You might accomplish something. But this is taking, this is the process of valuing learning. Because the end game is that we're not going to be on the planet. The end game is that all we have really is moments. So that what, what we have is now. We always have now until there aren't any more nows, and then I don't know what's now is then. <laughs> right? So it's really learned to appreciate the process of how we meet each moment. And the teaching, there's a thread of waking up in the middle, getting, learning to touch the mind in the middle. So mindfulness is this quality where there's not greed, there's, there's not pushing and pulling, but we see clearly. And we remember to do that again and again in a way where it's more just breath or breath and body, or then we open it out. And then the potentiality of it grows because it can fill up the entirety. And it can, whatever, whatever meets us, that's where we meet it with this quality. So the next quality which fulfills in the way that effort needs to land in mindfulness, concentration, steadiness. When we apply mindfulness again and again, something happens. So it's a process. There's, in a way, there's something next, but it's actually just causes and conditions coming together naturally. We keep placing our mind somewhere again and again, and the mind begins to get focused, concentrated. And so that's the fourth of these qualities, samadhi. Samadhi when it's very ripe. So when we practice with the breath and we get a few breaths in a row or more, does it start to feel good? It's pleasant. And there are 40 traditional objects of concentration in the Buddha's teachings, in one of the early commentaries. So breath is just one. It's considered a very good one because it's balancing. It's nature. Objects have an effect on the mind, and the breath's uh, nature is, is a neutral nature on the mind. If there are other things that come up because there are uh, emotions lodged in the body, it gets tight, etc., then that we don't, not everybody has a relationship with the breath that is neutral, that is easy. And it's, that can be worked with potentially skillfully, and for some people, breath isn't the best object. So, uh, but for many, it's a very good object. It's actually said that the Buddha was enlightened on it. So when we settle into the breath, and we're doing it in a, in a more open way in the body here, which actually calls for us right from the start, to strengthen this quality of interest, of curiosity, of mindfulness. 
it strengthens these qualities naturally because it's, it's not so rote. Uh, and, and then we can come to a place where it's more abiding. When we come and we settle on the mind, however, uh, the breath, however we're working with it, we start to get concentrated. And this is from uh, this is from uh, one of the early scriptures. Uh, I think it's the Samyutta. It's, it's from one of the early uh, teachings of the Buddha. It says, "Concentration by mindfulness of breathing, when developed and cultivated, is peaceful and sublime. An ambrosia of pleasant dwelling. Peaceful, isn't that nice? Peaceful and sublime." an ambrosia of pleasant dwelling. So maybe our practice hasn't matured to the point where it's peaceful and sublime all the time and a pleasant abiding. But concentration by its nature is, often we practice for concentration because we want a little break. And it's, it can be very skillful to have something other than an external substance that we go to, food or TV or phone call, where we can just settle in and get a little pleasure on the inside that's, that's based on us using our attentional skills in the moment, inside. So if we just practice for a bit of calm, it's great. It can really help us to live. If we practice, and these are not the conditions, and this is not a retreat where we're just practicing. We've already begun to open the practice so that we're emphasizing other qualities besides concentration. There are many states of concentration that can be reached. They're called absorptions. There's a, you can get one-pointed. That's one quality of, of, of concentration that we really penetrate into something to the extent that other things are abated. And we have it often in our jobs or our hobbies if we're passionate about them, different places in our life where the function of concentration is very strong to the extent that other things go away. And there's a pleasure in that. Now again, just like with mindfulness, uh, concentration can be skillful, oriented towards freedom, or it can be you know, unskillful. It can be used in the service of, of uh, destruction, of competency in ways that, that are not respectful to harmony in life and uh, not oriented towards inner freedom and the blossoming of that in relation with ourselves and others. So samadhi feels good. It can go to incredible levels. Uh, Wonderful discoveries can be had inside with it. And generally, if it's practiced, it's a bit fragile. So one thing you might experience when you start to settle, that when your concentration is broken, the, the, the breaking of it is even sharper. We can get edgy sometimes when we're doing concentration practice, or even if we're settling a bit, and then someone sneezes behind us, or we can get more perturbed by the heat, or whatever it might be, it can be sharper, quicker. Because we've gotten the one-pointedness, but it's not a flexible concentration. So I had an experience earlier in my life when, uh, um, it's actually, in a, a friend of mine wrote a book, we, were, we used to, uh, a woman I used to be in a relationship with, she wrote a book, it was called, I'll tell you, True Confessions. It's a, it's a book called Blue Jean Buddha. And uh, the woman's name is uh, Sumi, London. Anyways, it's for young people. Anyways, I'm the, fir- the cha- first chapter is all about me. My name's Jasper. 
What do you think, Matthew or Jasper? Which do you like? Okay. So Jasper is, uh, we, we lived together, at, uh, we lived together at, a, at a house, at, uh, we were assistants to house masters at, uh, at Harvard, at Lowell House at Harvard. And uh, I used to have this little room where I'd go and meditate. And it was busy. It was a busy life. So I had my little room. And I would, actually, it was our bedroom, but she had to be away from it. And I had that every morning. And I'd been meditating for a long time. I'd spent a lot of years in Asia. And I, I liked to get concentrated. It was my time. And she broke in on me one day. And I yelled at her because I was fragile. And what came up was anger immediately. And I said, how dare you? Don't look at me. Don't think less of me. I'm human. <laughs> how dare you break my pleasant feeling that I had from watching my breath? <laughs> so uh, she put it in a book, and she kept my name out of it, but now it's public. <laughs> <laughs> so that's the fragility of it, it, concentration can be fragile on its own. Uh, it can also be something that we get addicted to, and we don't want to put it in the service of awakening. So the teachings of the Buddha are likened to uh, you're on one shore, which is dukkha, right? We have this wheel out of kilter, this unnecessary reactive suffering, right? And there's the potential, supposedly, to take this journey to the other shore where we're free from suffering. And it could be a big freedom where we uproot some of these tendencies really deeply, or, 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 or bit by bit, so we feel there's a fundamental shift in the quality of, of how we relate. And it can be little bit, little, called little nibbanas that Ajahn Buddhadasa used to say. We get little bits of freedom, where we just, ah, little bits of freedom. So that's the movement of practice. Well, concentr- and so you can, when you go across the river, it said, uh, in, if you do insight practice, which is seeing the qualities, and then you start to see their natures. And then that's what liberates, seeing the actual nature of experience, which will be the last one we get to. Uh, maybe we'll get to it this time, maybe probably next time. Last talk. Uh, is that you can cross the shore in two ways. And it depends, on the t- it depends on how strong the currents are and the waves as well. So if you just do mindfulness, and there's not a lot of concentration, so you're just watching arising and passing away phenomena, right? You can see again and again, we can start to let go that way, to liberate. And we can maybe make it to the other shore, but it's very difficult. I think people, I'm getting some serious looks. So we, can, we know how difficult it is to stay mindful when the mind is not really steady, to stay with things and to actually see them in a way that we don't push and pull. And so sometimes, depending on the condition, it's said if you're just doing mindfulness, and there's actually one another meaning of dry mindfulness workers, is that we're just practicing this, and we can make it across, but it's a big struggle. And the conditions, there has to be enough concentration to get across. We have to be able to have enough steadiness. But you can really swim and swim and swim. Another way to go across, and it also depends on the conditions, is to have a boat. And so building concentration, which is time that we spend on an object, coming back again and again and again to build steadiness of mind. And in this way, we're working with with breath. Now, it can be one-pointed, but the flavor of concentration is steadiness. So some some ways of practicing concentration have a more open way of being concentrated. We can tap that sometimes. 
So the mind isn't necessarily that mindful, but it's very steady. So it's steadiness of mind. And it takes work. It takes diligence. So if we just keep coming back to the breath, we're building a boat that we can go across the other shore with. Why? Because we have more strength in the mind. We have more buoyancy. We've created more space between attachment to the tendencies of pushing and pulling and getting identified. Just we've created more space and there's a little more, a little more pleasantness, a little more ease. So if we have a strong relationship with the breath and then we're willing to open it up, then often we can use that in the service of having a little bit more buoyancy when we start to let everything that is other than breath in. So we can get, but we can get very attached. We can build our boat and depending on how much you, what, uh, what capacity you have for concentration, some people are really good at it naturally. I've been envious. I'm not supposed to have that emotion, but I've been very envious many times of people that have a really strong, some people go right in. And actually some of these people don't get to the other shore. That's the other danger. So you can build a little boat and you can take it across or you can big a big power boat. It usually takes longer unless you're lucky some inheritance or something, I don't know. And then potentially you can go because you have these factors together. But you have to know where you're going. You have to be really clear because when pleasure is there, you might just take your boat out and you might just have a nice pleasure cruise. And you're so enamored with the pleasure that's arising, the interest in, in the bliss states that can come. And some meditation traditions, and it can happen in this one too, People get very preoccupied with that. And so they go around and around and they come back. And you have to test yourself. Are you the same person you were before you did it? Has there some change in how we're actually relating? Or was it a, just a nice, pleasant, trippy experience? And then we ended up back on the same shore. Same old me. Oh no, I thought I was going to try to work with this. So, uh, and it's interesting because Faith and concentration work very closely together as well. So if we have an, a tendency towards faith in a lot of the devotion traditions, if we have a devotion to a teacher, we can get it can temporarily allay our, all the uh, movements of mind, and we can feel really pleasant in the moment. And when we combine that with an object right, that we're focusing on, the faith and the concentration work very close, can work very closely together and become very strong. And it can be, actually be very powerful but again, it needs to be in the service of wisdom. So we have to really have this willingness to take the concentrated mind to whatever extent we have it, or to have tremendous interest, <laughs> uh, and let that carry us and cross the shore, cross the other side. And of course, if you have a bigger boat and it's built the right way, not for pleasure, maybe a pleasure boat just has pontoons, and you have big waves, and you have a storm, it, even if it's a nice big boat, it gets crashed, right? it gets sunk. You want to build the kind of concentration that will, will able to steer us through, to stay sustained and upright. Uh, when the storms, which are the inner storms of our practice, mind states come. We want to stay steady. And now the last one, I'll just touch it. Maybe I won't touch it. You want to wait for wisdom? Can wisdom wait? Yes. You sure? Good, you have the right attitude. <laughs> so these qualities of uh, the willingness to sustain our attention in the present, to come back to it, 
right? Supported by our, our willingness to open moment by moment into the unknown and not knowing if we're going to get the results we, we want to, but staying with the course, and then bring a balanced effort, applying that to being right here again and again, right? With the breath, and then in, as we open it, we have, to, we have to use our judiciousness in that, opening it up or staying more close because we want to build, we want to build more inner strength in a way, more continuity of attention, more samadhi. But then as, we, as the practice unfolds, see if we can really let that start to move into really looking directly into the nature of experience and see what happens. Okay? I'll end with a little quote. Because when we do this, we can always be oriented towards an experience, can't we? Like towards the experience of letting go, of freedom, of a peace that is beyond just being with the breath. It's something that is sustained through clear seeing. But all of what, these, what these are doing, what these qualities are doing, is creating the conditions where something other than habit mind functioning ruling our inner world can be there. So this is from, oh, it's from Ajahn Chah, our, our good friend, uh, great uh, Thai master. He says, looking for peace is like looking for a turtle with a mustache. You won't be able to find it. But when your heart is ready, peace will come looking for you. When your heart is ready, peace will come looking for you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.